Maturity by Sinclair Ferguson Chapter 3 Abiding in Christ Part 1 We have heard the quote, word of exhortation of the author of Hebrews to go on to maturity. But exhortations can be counsels of perfection and what most of us feel we need is practical help. So how do we grow to maturity? Answering how-to questions is important. In our Christian subculture, a tendency has developed today to think that the Bible tells us what to do, but if we want to know how to do it, we need to inquire elsewhere. That elsewhere might be a book, a seminar or a website. These have their place. You are, after all, reading a book. But it is important not to overlook the fact that the scriptures that address what to do exhortations to us also provide answers to the how-to questions. But to discover them, we need to learn to meditate on the scriptures until the applications of their exhortations become clearer to us. We can be sure that God himself is concerned about our progress. We are his children. He does not give us commandments without helping us to see how we are to put them into practice. The New Testament authors knew this. Several of them were tutored under the personal guidance of Jesus. He taught them not only what, but how. This marriage of the what and the how is particularly well illustrated in our Lord's teaching in the upper room, John 13-17. In describing what was true about the disciples, he also taught them how they were to respond. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. John fifteen one to 11 What does Jesus mean when he speaks about bearing fruit? Is he, as has sometimes been assumed, urging his disciples to engage in various forms of evangelistic activity? At this point in their lives, that was probably the last thing on their minds. The context makes it far more likely that his concern here is for them to bear the fruit of the Spirit and to develop stable Christian character. This, not their gifts or position, but their growth in grace, will prove a person to be a disciple. 
What did Jesus have to say about this? The metaphor of the vine had already been used in the Old Testament for the people of God. As in Psalm 80 verse 8. Now Jesus applied it to himself. He is the true vine. We are the branches of that vine. And just as branches draw their nourishment and life from the vine, so our spiritual life is resourced by our union with him as the source of our life. If branches do not remain in the vine, that is, if they are not vitally attached so that it nourishes their life, then instead of growth there will be decay and death. That may not appear immediately, but in due time the branch will fear, fail to bear fruit. The vine dresser will then cut it off and burn it. John fifteen six. On the other hand, if a branch does draw nourishment from the vine, the vine dresser will still use his knife, but this time to prune the branch so that it will become even more fruitful. Subtitle, Union with Christ. Christians can grow in grace without appreciating the full nature of their relationship to Christ. We are united to Christ by trusting him. Because of that we grow, even if we do not understand all the implications of our fellowship with him. But we are more likely to make significant progress if we understand our union with him. This explains why, at this stage in his ministry to the apostles, Jesus took time to explain to them that they were united to him like branches to a vine. We are the branches. The word used here means a shoot, a young twig. Perhaps in this context it's helpful to think of it as a graft, a shoot which has been taken from another vine and grafted into a fruitful vine. The background helps to explain the relevance of these words. The men who first heard them were Jews. They belonged to Israel, the vine of God. Asaph the psalmist had sung of it in these terms. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. But Asaph himself struggled with the way in which the blessing of God no longer seemed to be resting on God's vine. Turn again, O Lord of hosts, look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They've burned it with fire, they've cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you've made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Psalm 80. Later, Isaiah had also composed a song of the vineyard. He described how the owner of the vineyard had looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes, Isaiah 5. Ezekiel 2 had spoken of the vine that had proved to be unfaithful, Ezekiel 19. But now Jesus claimed to be the true vine of God. Where Israel was a working model, Jesus was the reality itself. Where Israel had proved false, Jesus was true. Where Israel had proved fruitless, Jesus was fruitful. So to belong to God's vine now meant being united to Christ. The old vine no longer provided nourishment for them. The gardener had grafted them into the new and true vine. Now, in Christ, they had all the resources they would need in order to bear fruit. The way to being fruitful then was by their union with Christ, by drawing on his life, 
and by experiencing the Father's pruning of their lives. On the other hand, if they failed to bear fruit, thus indicating that their life was not drawn from the vine, the vine dresser's knife would not merely prune them, but cut them off. Sometimes Christians are troubled by Jesus' teaching here. Is it possible to be in the vine and then, as Jesus suggests, to be cut off? Can a Christian be cut off from Christ? It may be stretching Jesus' illustration to ask this question. But if indeed we are to think of the branches as grafts, we can imagine the gardener examining the vine to see whether the grafts have taken That is, to see whether there is a vital union between vine and branches. If the graft shows no sign of bearing fruit, then there is no evidence that it is vitally united to the vine, whatever the outward appearance may be. It will be cut away and burned. It has no life-receiving and fruit-bearing union with the vine. The disciples did not realise it yet, but one such branch, Judas Iscariot, had just left the upper room to betray their master. Paul also used a horticultural metaphor in his teaching on union with Christ in Romans 6, 1-14. In baptism, he says, we are baptised into the name of Christ. It signifies union with Christ. But, he goes on to say, if we are united to Christ, we must be united to him in his death and resurrection. If this is the case, important implications follow. If he died to sin, Romans 6, 10, and was raised to a new life for God, Romans 6, 2-4, then we too must have died to sin with him, and been raised with him to a new life of consecration to God. In particular, Paul says, if we've been united with him in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection, Romans 6, 5. The phrase, united with, translates one word in Greek, which could be translated, planted together. The word is derived from a verb which means to grow together and so to be bound up with, to be closely related to, to be native to or even cogenital. As when a person grows up with a father's eyes, a mother's facial features and so on. Paul is saying that the Christian is someone who grows up with or has the congenital character of union with Christ in his death and resurrection. It describes who we are. Christ's death to sin and resurrection to live for God are defining aspects of our new life in Christ. This is what it means to belong to the new creation. We are born again with new defining features. For example, sin no longer has dominion over us. We have not yet been delivered from sin's presence, but we are no longer under its authority. It is not a goal at which we now aim but a basic reality in our lives. And since this is our new identity, we are called to express it in our lives. Putting these two important passages together then, we learn twin truths. First, we have been grafted into a situation, into a union with Christ, so that all he has done for us becomes ours. We live out of the resources he provides for us and himself. Two, This union with Christ gives us a new relationship both to sin and to God. Understanding and appreciating this is a fundamental growth point. 
We cannot linger on it here, except to underline the importance of studying over and over again such important passages as Galatians 2.20, Romans 6, 1 to 14, and Colossians 3, 1 to 16. Here we must also become undergardeners of our own souls and devote time and effort to increase in our understanding of our union and fellowship with God. We're all tempted to take quick routes and shortcuts. But the sections of God's word that reflect on union with Christ need to be visited again and again if they are to leave their imprint on our lives. Learning the great lessons of grace, like the cultivation of the best fruit, requires time, care, thought and patience. Lasting influences develop by understanding rather than by feeling. Second subtitle. The Father's Cultivation My Father is the vine dresser, said Jesus. How we think about God will determine a great deal about how we live the Christian life. These simple words speak volumes about both the character and the activity of the Father. They reflect the constancy, patience, interest and labour which the Father bestows in both the Son and his people. The Old Testament had described the lavishness of God's care on his faithless vine Israel. How much more care does he display in the new true vine he's planted in Christ? Jesus concentrates on one particular aspect of the vine dresser's activity. Quote, Every branch that does bear fruit he prunes. John 15.2 The verb is to cleanse. The root of the word catharsis. An experience that cleanses the emotions is derived from it. In this context, it refers to a cleansing that takes place not by washing, but by cutting. The divine cutting has our inner cleansing in view. Leon Morris explains the function of the metaphor. Quote, Left to itself, a vine will produce a good deal of unproductive growth. For maximum fruitfulness, extensive pruning is essential. This is a suggestive figure for the Christian life. The fruit of Christian service is never the result of allowing the natural energies and inclinations to run riot. Jesus assures the disciples that they are already clean through his word. They have received the washing of forgiveness. Now they must experience the cleansing of pruning. The Christian life involves ongoing pruning. What does this mean? The Father's pruning includes his providences and interventions in our lives which are designed to produce in us mature and well-rounded Christian character. The metaphor of pruning is an apt one for the aims of pruning differ according to the stage of development of the particular plant. And then there are three sections on different stages. The first is initial pruning. In the early years of a plant's life, the basic function of pruning is not to produce fruit immediately, but to prepare for future fruit. Good pruning helps create the proper form and shape in the plant so that it can both produce and support quality fruit in the future. Parallel principles are at work in the Christian life. In our earliest periods of spiritual life, God's purpose is to lay the foundations on which he will build in the future. Distorted growth here has the potential to warp the rest of our Christian life. 
So we need to share God's longer term view. Of course God may produce fruit overnight as it were. But character development is normally a progressive work. So while we tend to look impatiently for immediate fruit. He has a longer term strategy. Sometimes we unwisely encourage new Christians to engage in public activity so early on in their lives. That their spiritual growth becomes distorted. And the quality of their long term fruitfulness is diminished. But God is not in a panic. He has his own timetable. Yes, there are individuals he throws in at the deep end, who then seem to mature almost overnight. That is his prerogative. But if we review the biblical narrative, we will notice how often his preparation of individuals is slow, sometimes far too slow for their liking. When our greatest need is to be patiently shaped by the influences of God's word and providence, we would be foolish to try to run before we can walk. This is why Paul gave wise counsel to Timothy, counsel he himself had applied in nurturing Timothy, not to place young Christians at spiritual peril by exposing them to the temptations of public position and the attendant danger of pride. 1 Timothy 3.6 Think how long it took and what pruning was involved before the young, self-centred, impatient Joseph was fit to bear the fruit he did in Egypt. He says in the footnote, the pruning process takes 14 chapters before Joseph is the right man in the right place knowing how to do the right thing. If we are not patient here with the processes in which the Spirit uses the word to transform us, what Paul calls correction, 2 Timothy 3.16, the word carries the nuance of restoration, then our development will be stunted, our fruit substandard. The only plant in scripture that grew up overnight was Jonah's castor oil plant and it withered the next day, Jonah 4. Our Lord's parable of the sower and the seed he scattered in various kinds of soil reinforces the point, Matthew 13. Harvests take time. Seed needs to take root in the soil. Weeds need to be dealt with if lasting fruit is to be produced. The once impatient Simon Peter eventually learned this from his master's patient and progressive work in his life. His first letter provided many illustrations of his new understanding. One of the most interesting is the way he responds to the question, how should a Christian woman who's married to a non-Christian husband witness to him? Think about that in the form of a multiple choice question. Question, tick the answer you would give to the following question put to you by a young Christian woman converted relatively recently. Question, I became a Christian recently. My husband is not a Christian and as yet shows very little interest. What should I do? Answer options. Number one. Tell him if he isn't converted by the end of the year, you will return to your mother. Option two. Send him Christian literature through the post anonymously in an unmarked brown envelope. Question three. Make sure you do your daily Bible reading when he can see what you're doing in the hope that it will make him see his need. Answer four, tell him as often as you can about the difference Christ has made to you. Five, put a different tract under his cornflakes once a week. Of course these answers are an intentional caricature, but caricatures connect to reality. Peter's actual response teaches us a great deal. He shows us a better way. Peter's answer is this, wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, They may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. To many Christians, nurtured 
on some of the manuals and evangelistic techniques of more recent times, this council will run counter to everything they've been taught. But notice the biblical principle behind these words. God provides opportunities for preaching and he gives men gifts to take the opportunity. God provides opportunities for us to speak with others about Christ and that is our responsibility and privilege. But our primary task in the basic long-term relationships of life is this. In all of our daily relationships with others, to be shaped and fashioned in obedience to God's clearly revealed will so that we become living letters to them. We are called to live out the gospel so that others can see that it is God's saving power and makes a practical difference to us. Peter well knew that in our impatience and perhaps immature zeal we can damage relationships with those with whom we live long term. This is not naively to adopt the saying associated with Francis of Assisi, quote, preach the gospel, use words if you have to, end quote. But Peter does seem to be saying, live like this and you will find that people will ask you questions about the gospel. Be ready to answer them, 1 Peter 3.14. Notice how different Peter's expectation is from the pattern that is developed in Western evangelism where Christians are expected to ask non-Christian questions to try to stimulate their interest. Is that the case because the style and quality of our lives does not provoke people to ask what makes us tick and why we are different? Sadly, many surveys of professing Christians seem to suggest that this is true. God's way provides for the long term. It protects us from the kind of immaturity that ruins relationships before there's time for our witness to have any effect. As brothers or sisters... Husbands or wives, parents or children, employers and employees and as friends. Our ongoing witness is to be expressed in the way we live out the pattern of life God has given us in such passages as Ephesians 5, Colossians 3 and here in 1 Peter 3. Yes, there will be opportunities to speak, to answer the questions our changed lives prompt relatives, colleagues and friends to ask. But until people who encounter us daily and know us well see this transformation, Our words may seem little more to them than words without weight. Did Peter know that many wives had found that they needed to repair broken relationships because they'd spoken impatiently rather than live in patient and expectant godliness? How dull and unspectacular, how dreary, how slow, how unspiritual, how lacking in zeal we might be tempted to respond. Yes, it is possible for us to hide behind Peter's words and never speak for Christ. But by the same token, we can ignore God's long-term designs. So long-term fruit is God's goal. That requires pruning in order to produce strength and stability. The letter of maturity agrees, Hebrews. For the moment, all discipline, the word means child training, seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it Hebrews 12 when we set our hearts on the divinely planned long term goals then when the father comes pruning knife in hand we can say with confidence later on a harvest we may not understand at the time exactly what he's doing but as Jesus promised Peter in another context what I'm doing you do not Understand now, but afterwards you will understand. John 13. The second area of pruning, and I think it's 
the second of two, not the second of three, like I said earlier, is ongoing pruning. Further pruning of a plant aims to cut back the growth in order to produce a balance between new growth and the production of fruit. The vine dresser is concerned for present production, but he's also concerned to husband the resources of the vine for more mature, richer quality fruit in the future. Hence the old description, husbandman. To the undrained eye, his cutting may seem arbitrary, almost careless. His pruning knife flashes in the sun and twigs lie apparently wasted around the vine. The skilful vine dresser distinguishes between adequate pruning and over-severity. A vine severely pruned will produce leaf-bearing shoots which invariably become fruitless stems. Pruning is a skill. If the vine dresser cuts too far from the bud, the stub will die and harbour disease. But if he cuts too close to it, the bud itself may be damaged. The skilled vine dresser cuts close but not too close to the bud and produces strong, fruitful, lasting growth. As he prunes, he cuts back branches that cross over or rub against each other and takes away diseased wood and burns it. John 15 The Heavenly Father is such a master vine dresser. Jesus' illustration carries with it several important practical applications. God knows what he is doing in every situation in our lives, not least in our darker moments. Pain, times of disappointment or sorrow, all serve as his pruning knife. His providences at times seem to cut deeply, but his purpose is to enable us to grow strong enough to bear new fruit. He prunes with perfect skill. We are tested, but not beyond what we can bear. We experience sorrow, but he always provides comfort. But that comfort can be known only in the sorrow. And it also equips us to comfort others in their sorrow too, Second Corinthians 1. Paul spoke from personal experience. Quote, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Second Corinthians 4, 7-12 no words could more poignantly describe the work of the divine pruning knife. Death is at work in us. But it produces life or fruit in others. If we are to benefit from the divine pruning then, as older Christians must say, God must sanctify to us our sufferings. We in turn should have two important biblical principles fixed in our minds. First, there are no accidents in the Christian life. Our Lord spoke of the Father's pruning from experience. He was the vine, this Father, the vine dresser. He himself had been pruned during his life. He learned obedience through what he suffered, Hebrews 5. Even as he spoke in the upper room, he was on the verge of being pruned so severely that he would cry out under the sharp pain of God's cuts. First that, if possible, he might be spared them, and then in his dreadful experience of being God-forsaken. In a sense, 
Our Lord bore more fruit through his dying than through his teaching and through going to the cross than through his coming to the manger. His death was no accidental slip of the vine dresser's knife. Indeed, it was written in his manual of old, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, Zechariah 13.7. As it was with the true vine, so it will be with the branches. Older writers used to employ well-known words from the Song of Solomon to illustrate this. Quote, he brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. Song of Solomon 2.4 Nothing can happen to us, they would say, unless it enters our lives underneath that banner. Yes, Jesus taught that his disciples would experience persecution and sorrow, John 15 and 16. But when these cut into our lives, like the sharp edge of a pruning knife, we can be sure that our Father's steady hand holds the handle. We must therefore fix our eyes not on the blade that cuts, but on the hand that holds. The second principle to fix in our minds is there is no waste in the Christian life. Nothing Christ takes from us is ever a waste. Only possessing what Christ would not have us possess, or possessing something instead of Christ and his will, is waste. This is not always visible to the naked eye. To the flesh, Christ is loss and the world is gain. But Christians live by a different rate of exchange. When our ambitions are thwarted, our own plans come to nothing. And we feel the blade of providence in our lives. Here is our security. God does not waste. Therefore, I shall not want. But what if something or someone we prize is taken from us? Still nothing that happens in God's providence is wasted for his people. Amy Carmichael bore witness to this when she prayed, quote, Rid me, good Lord, of every diverting thing. What prodigal waste it appears to be to see scattered on the floor the bright green leaves and the bare stem bleeding in a hundred places from the sharp steel. But with a tried and trusted husbandman, there's not a random stroke in it all, nothing cut away which it would not have been lost to keep and gain to lose. Nothing cut away which it would not have been lost to keep and gain to lose. God's pruning is always perfectly regulated by his wise, loving and sovereign purpose. Every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. John 15.2 it's the end of part one.